The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. May I respectfully remind the captain what has happened? The Romulans have crossed the neutral zone, attacked our outpost, killed our men. Mr. Stiles. Add to that the fact that it was a sneak attack. Mr. Stiles, are you questioning my orders? Negative, sir. I'm pointing out that we could have Romulan spies aboard this ship. Keep coming. Cryptography is working on it, sir. Kevin and Spark. Didn't quite get that, Mr. Sound. Nothing, sir. Repeat it. I was suggesting that Mr. Spark could probably translate it for you, sir. I assume you're complimenting Mr. Spark on his ability to decode. I'm not sure, sir. Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, Mr. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 13, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, always the number you can call to join us, as on today's show, we're going to be talking about, I guess, really three basic themes, wouldn't you say, Robert? Maybe even just two, but with three sections, I'm not even sure. Three intertwining themes, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. And you're going to end up the show with a little, um, I guess, uh, update, not update, but information thing on someone we all know and love so much, right? Shea Herrera. <laughs> <laughs> His love so yes. much, yeah, mm-hmm. right. And we'll, Robert and I will also be looking at an, at an anatomy of a protest as well as looks like that banana discussion is going to continue for a bit. But no, we won't be talking about the Ontario election results today other than to say it was a great election for Freedom Party's first showing on the electoral map. And for the most part, given all the possible outcomes that could have occurred, I'm ki- kind of happy with the current lay of the land. You too, Robert? There were some um, high, high points and low points yeah. in my opinion. However, do rest assured that we will be looking at the election results in some detail on an upcoming show, or even perhaps shows in plural, because I'll tell you the things I learned about elections and voters this election tell quite a story. This is our first bird's eye view of the whole province at once, you know, getting a a whole feel for it. So one show I do plan to do in the future is to just let our listeners hear for themselves the kind of questions and concerns that political parties get during an election. It's an eye-opener. So that's something we'll do in the future, but not today. On last week's show, which was actually on Election Day in Ontario, we discussed four different subjects, and lo and behold, two of them have stirred some controversy or expanded into bigger stories, and one of them's banana peels, and the other one's the Wall Street protests, which are turning out to be something quite large, aren't they, Robert? They're very interesting, I find. Yes. However... um, Actually, they're not very large, to tell you the truth. Apparently, all of the Wall Street occupier protests from all of the cities... Mm -hmm have uh, totaled less than the um, Tea Party march uh, in the Washington Mall. 
Is that it? That's an yeah. interesting. So they're stat, not very so. well attended at all, actually. Well, it'll be interesting to hear your take on the whole thing then at the end of the show. But first, we got a couple of letters from on our topic last week about um, it's just a banana, the whole incident at the JLC, um, John Labatt Center here in London during a hockey game. won't get into all the details because I think it'll come out in, in the letter I'm going to be reading. And uh, we had uh, one person who we all know, Paul Lambert, wrote us and certainly liked our take and had an interesting observation. We had another listener who wrote us from Niagara Falls who didn't really like us so much and let us know. Spent quite a bit of time sending us a letter to let us know, and it was sent on the same day of the broadcast, so I guess uh, must have been in a hurry to get it out. But he says, he says hello to us. He says, my name is Anthony of Niagara Falls, Ontario, and I am a frequent listener to your program on CHRW. As a centrist who likes freedom, liberty, and free markets, but also the environment and social justice, I like and hate what I hear with equal measure. Because of my liberal views, I've been meaning to write you for some time. What precipitated this email, however, was hearing you make the preposterous assertion that racism no longer exists in Canada. But I'm getting ahead of myself because there are other things I'd like to mention first, he says. To begin with, and at the risk of becoming pedantic, you are not just right, but in fact are right-wing. You proved this today beyond a reasonable doubt when you repeatedly used the pejorative phrase, lib-left. Moreover, the fact that you are against human rights commissions in the well-trodden trod tradition of Stephen Harper makes your right-wing orientation abundantly clear. More disturbing, however, is the free market fundamentalism that you so fervently practice. Just a few months ago, I recall that you defended price gouging of the desperate as more or less morally acceptable. I'd like to tell you an incident which was recounted to me personally in the early 90s before Niagara's building boom, motel rooms were hard to come by on long week weekends in summer. This, were, this was particularly true of U.S. Independence Day weekend. I recall that a motel owner here in the falls told me one summer that he charged a desperate family $125 to sleep in his home's basement for one night. Does that seem moral and ethical to you? Perversely enough, it probably does, because you apparently can't find the racism in a banana tossed at a black player. This leads to my third point about racism. It is alive and doing well in Canada. True, vicious racial slurs shouted at your face are rare these days, but racism has just gone underground. Consider the following anecdotes. Firstly, I've noticed racism in the past year in advertisements for mutual fund companies and a major American automaker. One local advertising company even subtly advertised its willingness to make such commercials. Then consider my longtime friend Pete, a Chinese-Canadian. One day last year in Tim Hortons, it took him an unreasonable amount of time to get a tea. I asked him why it was taking so long, because I can get a tea in two minutes. He confided in me that, being Asian, this type of thing happens to him all the time. This shouldn't surprise you, because in British Columbia, wealthy Chinese are smeared as being connected to the triads. But there's more. Yeah, there's more. There's more, Robert, really. I recall that when I worked at an auto plant only five years ago, the jokes going around were the most vile jokes imaginable. And then he tells us a couple of jokes that use the N-word, which I will not repeat. And he says, Mr. Metz, your assertion that racism no longer exists in Canada is simply ridiculous and delusional. Yes, I've got over the numerous times that I've been called a WAP, but not every ethnic group gets treated as well as Italians. The comedian Russell Peters has said that to this day, he can't eat parsley because it tastes too much like the grass that he was forced to eat when being bullied at school. 
you know, I don't think that minorities need to get over it. I think that hard right-wingers such as yourself need to get your head out of the sand and wake up to reality. Finally, before I go, just let me say that sometimes you people who hate the human rights commissions bring its wrath upon yourselves. McLean's magazine published a vicious polemic against Muslims, then wouldn't even let them rebut the article. You libertarians deserve your horrible fate at the hands of the HRC. Regards, Tony, Niagara Falls. Well, thank you for the letter, Tony. It's great to have a, a loyal listener, but unfortunately I don't think that you've been listening all that well to our show. Well, apparently, maybe he hasn't heard all our shows on racism and the issues we've done in the past. Or to, call okay. us, or, or to call us right-wing and libertarian. Well, My God, we've destroyed both of those philosophies on this show. Many times. But, you know, I'm not going to try to even defend that part of the situation, but, you know, Tony... Just as I advised someone named Mike last week to get over it, I'm going to say the same thing to you. I know you don't want to hear that. And it's obvious in your letter, and by get over it, I mean the first thing you got to get over is your anger. My goodness, you're kind of angry here. And, uh, you know, you, you think people deserve something, their horrible fate. Well, we'll talk about that in a sec. But, you know, and the second thing you've got to get over is all these prejudices and a refusal to accept that maybe... Just maybe the world is not as racist a place as you apparently would like to believe it is. And thirdly, you have to accept the facts as they're given, not try to change them or bring irrelevancies in so that you can continue to make this sad point you're trying to make. And you might not know it, but Robert and I would see you as a victim of the victim culture. And, and you know, you're as liberal read as any person who's ever written to us sometime. I don't know that I would call you a centrist in any way. I think, you know, your letter, in fact practically illustrates our point that we made last week. If you have to dig back five years to think of a racial joke, whether it's offensive or in poor taste or racist, uh, you know, I'm not in a position to say, and I don't care. I mean, if you have to resort to anecdotes about a cup of tea being served slowly to a Chinese person at Tim's ho Tim Hortons, like, on the other coast, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not exactly the major issues on which we're going to be talking about racism in this this country. I mean, how far are you willing to stretch this truth to sell the lie? You say that racism has gone underground. Well, no, it hasn't gone underground. It hasn't disappeared. It's gone into where it belongs, in the private confines of a person's home. You keep your bigotry in your quarters, just like Captain Kirk said, and that's as far as it should go. The state has no business coming into your quarters because you're a bigot. They do have a bit of an interest messing with you if you're being a bigot in public and in certain places where it's just not appropriate. But again, Tony began, you know, you began your letter by misrepresenting yourself as a centrist who, quote, likes freedom, liberty, and free markets. But then right after insulting the name of our show, you begin your objections to just right on the grounds of the free market fundamentalism we so fervently practice. And yet, that's the part you said you liked. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden he doesn't like it. So he likes the result of free markets, but I think maybe what he hates is the principles on which free markets operate. Wanting your cake and having it too. And so that's why I say again, you, you seem to be lib-left all the way. It's not a centrist position you're taking. And wishing a horrible fate upon us before a human, human wrong commission is an incredibly mean-spirited and misguided thing to wish. And if listening to this show is turning you into the Dr. Hyde of centrism, well, maybe you should stop listening. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Here's a fact, you know, the, the horrible fate that all of the so-called libertarians and right-wingers had in front of the Human Rights Commissions, the ones we talked about, is called victory. <laughs> that was a horrible fate. They all won before the Human Rights Commission, which means that even by the Human Rights Commission's own warped way of thinking, they had no case against their targets. 
How can you interpret it otherwise? Which meant that in each case, these people were innocently brought before a public tribunal for a state judgment of their opinions. I mean, how evil is that? Very evil. I mean, Tony, listening to this, is this the world you want to live in? And, you know, we talked last week about Elijah Elif, you know, the case that I discussed and I represented. I'm not a lawyer, by the way, but we won the case in front of a human rights commission. And it wasn't about a right-winger or a libertarian. Mr. Ilyev wouldn't even know what those words meant. Nor did he have a political bone in his body, for heaven's sakes. His mistake was in treating an, an identifiable minority, and by identifiable we mean under Canadian law, because they pick and choose. The majority of Asians in his, uh, the majority of tenants, rather, in his building were Asians, and he was doing for them the very things you suggest that business people and service providers should do for the so-called desperate. He was letting tenants into his buildings without first and last month rent. He was allowing some of the Asians' families to double and triple up apartments without paying extra rent. And on and on it went. And you know something, Tony, when you do favors for people, you know what happens? You get charged by the authorities. You can't do it. And sure enough, that was a huge part of the whole controversy with Mr. Elif. Authorities were constantly asking him to evict the excess tenants, but when he con- contacted authorities to help him in the task, they refused to do so. And so he was powerless to do anything about it, caught between a rock and a hard place. And remember, all this was going on against the backdrop of a local community activist launching a human rights complaint against the landlord in a bid to contr- you know, gain control of his buildings. And you should also know, and here's the joke of jokes, that although we won our case before the Human Rights Commission, when I, who am not a lawyer, represented him, the case was appealed by the Human Rights Commission later, where it went to the regular courts. I was not involved in this part of the process. And it was fought exclusively on legal arguments and not on the evidence, that's for sure. Mr. Ilyev was on his own, he couldn't afford a lawyer. He'd already been bankrupted by the previous process. Because in the end, the courts found Mr. Ilyev guilty. Guess what? Of discriminating against Vietnamese. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that had nothing to do with the original complaint. The original complaint was that he was discriminating against Cambodians. So it didn't even matter to the, to the courts what he discriminated against or who. In their very ruling, the courts displayed a completely racist perspective and ignorance. Vietnamese and Cambodians have been arch enemies in in the part of the world where they come from. But our courts couldn't even make that distinction because to the three judges that rendered the decision, apparently all Asians look alike. (laughs) Why else would you come up with a decision? Didn't they even read the report? So much for having to be aware of all the little nuances of their respective cultures, which is the kind of thing Tony wants us all to do, right? So, Tony, all the right-wingers and libertarians emerged victorious from their human rights ordeals. The poor guy that got slaughtered was a completely unpolitical landlord who was simply trying to provide a service to a minority group. And this is the ugly reality of how the world of human rights commissions really operates. Over and over again, innocent victims who astronomically outnumber the real serious cases, sure, there are a few serious ones, and they, they should go before a real court. That, that does happen. Let's not, let's not ignore that. But but the most, the innocent ones, they're dragged before it. They claim guilt right away because they want to mitigate the cost and avoid the injustice of a tribunal system that assumes guilt before innocency. You might as well get it over with. And with those declarations and statistics, after all these innocent people declare guilty, the Human Rights Commissions can proudly boast how many racist incidents we have in Canada and Ontario to deal with. And then the whole fiction becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is the only way it can end if we allow it to continue. 
you know, the issue isn't human rights commissions per se, but as bodies of adjudication, it's the laws that they are used to enforce. And the process that is used, which is not due, due process, that is. And racism, remember, is a product of collectivism, which is a product of social justice, the term euphemistically used by those seeking the unearned. And via social justice, they violate individual justice, the only kind of justice that exists in favor of egalitarianism. It's all about redistributing the earned wealth to the unearned wealth, earned rights to unearned rights, by force. So I want to thank Tony for a wonderful example and exhibit of the liberal collectivist mindset, what I've been calling left lib, and to which he explicitly objects. But let me make it clear, the term left lib is not a pejorative, any more than the words socialism or communism are pejoratives. The terms are descriptive, and because they describe an evil idea or a social consequence, it's only natural that they come to be regarded as something undesirable or something you don't want to be associated with. Thus, the people who support these evils start to attack the good for using the terms that describe the moral and philosophical nature of their ideas and actions. Remember the whole kerfuffle over the, over the NDP? We're not socialists. Yes, we are. No, we're not. <laughs> the, the, the fight was hilarious because they, they understood the implications of that word. Words mean things. And when we wipe out the words used to describe evil, then we are helpless against those evils. And that's the whole reason all this is going on. That's why we should start using these so-called pejorative terms. If nothing else, they stir the debate, which is exactly what the left libs want to avoid. They don't want debate. Debate is the one thing they want to quell, because these are the ideas they don't want to hear. It makes them uncomfortable. A legitimate term could be a pejorative if it was used to describe someone who's not in the category described. For example, although I fully accept the terms right-wing and libertarian as being descriptive when properly defined and applied, they are pejoratives, and clearly intended as such by the writer when applied to you and me, Robert. Apparently right? so, yes. You see? So, you know, should we all, should we get to, you know, call up the Human Rights Commission and say, oh dear, he called us something we aren't even, you know? Like, I don't know how many of our shows Anthony's actually heard, but he sure must have missed the 70 or 80 explicit programs we dedicated to totally ripping into conservatives, right-wingers, and libertarians. But, um, you know, the funny thing is, if you create enforcement agencies looking for racism, you know, they're going to find it. And if they don't find it, they will manufacture it. And that's just the way it works everywhere in the world. Check it out. It's always done that way. And another letter from, uh, and, and thank you, Tony. Now, another letter we got from um, our good friend Paul Lambert, our Euro correspondent, who tells us he, he's going to be joining us as such in the near future again. But he, has, he complimented us on our take on this issue, Robert. But he made an interesting observation. He says, we covered most of the bases. However, quote, I would have liked to have heard you address one more thing. I think that the immediate knee-jerk association in so many people's minds really just reflected an inability to content, uh, oh, to content with their own racist sentiments towards black people. I certainly would not accuse Mayor Fontana of being racist, but I think it was wrong of him to jump on that bandwagon. Frankly, I think the real racists are those who see race in everything. <laughs> kind of true, isn't it? So that's my whole take on the racism thing. I know, Robert, you and I had that talk about the whole banana issue. We, you know, we're still trying to figure out what, where that originated from. And, you know, we were talking about it, and it struck me that it's not about the bananas. It's the, I think there's almost an indirect relation. As I look into other issues, you count how many times you're going to hear the word banana and jungle on the show today. 
Uh, you have banana republics. You have, um, I don't know what the association is. I don't know if, if the banana is related to a jungle because anybody coming from a jungle apparently is supposed to be, I guess, primitive compared to the rest of us. I don't know. Mr. Elieff got in trouble for that too. He used the word jungle in one of his statements talking mm -hmm. about where the Cambodians and Asians came from. And he got in trouble over that word. So I don't know if it's what the actual etymology of this weird thing is, but I'm not going to spend my life worrying about every single uh, racist association. You know, you, you want to know if you go into a certain uh, culture yourself. I mean, if you're going to visit Rome, be as the Romans. Make sure you know what the local moors are before you go there because you can get into trouble without even expecting it. Um, that was certainly the case. My, my dad used to tell me in Europe all the time you could get in trouble just going from one small town to another because there were no official languages, like, a, like, um, like in German, Hochdeutsch, you know, an official language, a word that meant something just common in one town could mean an insult in, in the town next to you, so you had to be careful. But anyways, you know, the thing I fear is if we go this direction, and, and I don't even know what Tony would like to have done with all the things that he objects to. What do you want to do? Put all those people in jail? Have a state that goes around and tells them that, you know, you can't say this, you can't say that, and going around whipping people and keeping, keeping them in line? That's, that's, not, that's not the way it should be. So, just to wrap up, this next clip is from Enterprise, the Star Trek series, in which they envisage a North America taken over by the Nazis. And what I found interesting and a little offensive in this episode was that they kept interchanging the word Nazi with German. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as if those two things are equivalent. But I'm not going to complain about that, too, because the point was being well made. Uh, when we come back after this break, we'll be talking about um, getting into the whole protest thing and the public's failure in our whole system of democracy, banking, economics, you name it. We'll be back after this. Used to be we'd get meat on Wednesdays and Fridays. Then it was just Wednesdays. Nazis blame the resistance, say we're disrupting the food shipping. Makes the Germans look like heroes. Yeah. Fighting to feed the people. See, stress. Look. <sighs> no eye contact. Why do you walk this up? Why not? Do you like Negroes? We don't want any trouble. Shut up. Did we make you angry? You could say that. So he sends her back to Africa. You can go along. You can run through the jungles together. Huh. Like I said, neighborhood's gone downhill. show business, which means that I'm better than you. Now, here's... I don't mean that as an insult to you, it's just the natural way. Um, being in show business is great, and if you're not in it, you should get in it, because... Number one, the money is obscene. <laughs> it is crazy. Here's how rich I am. Um, I like going to a Banana Republic and buy shirts two at a time. 
Right. Right. That's right. I guess you should applaud for that. Here's the thing. People, you're probably saying to me, but Paul, those shirts cost a lot of money. Yes, yes they do. <laughs> they cost a lot of money that I have. <laughs> Maybe I'll be walking out and I'll see they have windbreakers by the door, a rack of windbreakers. And I'll say, you know what, throw a windbreaker in the bag. And the saleswoman may say, but sir, don't you want to try it on? Try it on, try it on, try it on. Why, why, why? <laughs> if it doesn't fit, I'll throw it away. <laughs> Sometimes I'll eat money just to do it, just to see how it feels. It feels good. It feels powerful. Also, sometimes I eat a tin can or two because I'm part goat. <laughs> Talk about flaunting your wealth, eh, Robert? Jeez. <laughs> you think there's uh you think he's in the top one percent that everybody's talking about? Top one percent of the loony bin, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh but I always Eating find money. That, yeah, his stuff's Terrible. funny. He he really takes point to to its extreme. Uh I here is a problem. I think this leads up to your section on the whole protest issue, Robert. And it's written by apparently a liberal person from the Conference Board of Canada. Her name is Armin Yalnizian. And she wrote an editorial in the National Post on September 21st, to which I have already seen a number of rebuttals, including one here from, oh, who is this from, Vancouver-based Fraser Institute, because all of them were arguing, I think, on the wrong terms. They were all talking about equality and inequality of wealth, as, that, as if that were kind of a problem. And I think it's the wrong way to frame it. And ironically, despite all these conservative criticisms of this, what I'm going to quote from here is a part that I agree with from this, from this liberal observer. And the headline read, um, Income inequality isn't just unfair, it threatens the whole foundation on which our capitalist economy is based. And a second headline reads, Businesses rely on rising purchasing power of the many, not the few, to deliver growth and profits. Both true statements, can't argue with that. But instead of, now, instead of reading the commentary, the part I disagree with, I've chosen to read only the observations made by the writer that I fully agree with because the conclusion of the essay leaves a lot to be desired, particularly in terms of a solution. And while it all sounds very pro-capitalist, it is anything but. Uh, the solution is elusive to most people because the problem is framed, I think, in a, in, a, in a wrong way, Robert. My objection to this commentary is that, it, that they frame the problem as one of inequality, even though this was not the argument being made. Because after going on about all the unfairness of income inequality, it wasn't until the middle of this full-page editorial that the writer says, and here's where I started to agree, and I'll quote. This might touch on your issue. Quote, For most Canadians, the issue isn't that the rich are getting richer. The dilemma they face on a daily basis is, is getting and staying in the middle class. It's the promise of their own upward mobility that has, has many Canadians willing to brush aside the handsome gains enjoyed by the rich in the past 20 years. Yet today, Canadians are wondering if their children are going to do as well as they did. Armin gives a, a great personal example of this point, and she says, quote, I see it in my own life. Back in 1979, it took six weeks working minimum wage full-time to cover my full-time undergraduate tuition in Toronto. Working all summer, I covered my books, administration fees, rent and food, and even had some beer money left over. Today's typical student in Ontario has to work 16 weeks at the minimum, at the minimum wage to cover just the cost of tuition, let alone anything else. 
yet most are still frozen out of the job market. With 180,000 fewer 15 to 24-year-olds employed across Canada than when the debt crisis broke in 2008. And then after citing other examples from housing to interest and mortgage rates, she continues, quote, The story is the same in most large cities across this land, the places where most young Canadians live. The latest generation of Canadian families has to put way more time into the labour market than their predecessors to avoid losing economic ground. No one knows the tipping point, but lock enough people out of the promise of gains, and at some point, and this gets to your point, Robert, instead of stability and growth, you get social unrest. Mm -hmm. Truly reducing inequality requires either increased incomes or lower costs, she writes, for the majority. That means bosses and owners sharing more of the productivity gains and profits with workers or paying more tax to expand affordable access to post-secondary education, public transit, and child care, thus taking the pinch out of small paychecks. For those who feel these measures are too costly, they should consider the alternative. Everyone has a stake in fixing this, and the fix has no political color. It's about the future of Canada and where we're heading as an economy, a society, a democracy. That's why even conservatives are worrying about Canada's rising income gap. End quote. Well, worry is not a solution, but it is very conservative. (laughs) And it's also very liberal. And... You know, to say that there is no political color to fix this problem, and we all know the solution is black and white, right? The problem is the solution is not blue, red, orange, or green. And that's where the dilemma is for these people. Same dilemma our voters faced in the last election. They didn't feel they had any choices because the colors they get to choose from are all the colors that are giving them the problems they have today. So, you know, what is really meant is that no individual political color has a solution, but that somehow four or more political colors who don't have a solution will pool all their non-solutions by combining enough of their negatives and somehow come up with a positive. Think it works that way? Works like that in electricity, doesn't it? Or, no, it didn't work that way. Forward together. Where did I hear something like that recently? Don't know. Have to have to recall it. But uh, you know, the whole idea of and then the conservatives respond, you know, you won't be poor for long. No, you're not, in, you're not unequal. We're doing better today than we did then. And they, and they cite all sorts of statistics. And I'll tell you, Robert, I don't believe that. Sure, we might be making more dollars, but we don't have more wealth. Not in the same sense. Not in, not in each individual family's uh, general income. I mean, everything I see says it's going the other way. Look at this article I just clipped this morning. Retirees rack up debt. You know, this, this is a myth in Canada that when people retire... You know, they're better off and everything. Apparently, stats are showing desperately, quote, older Canadians are growing their debt loads faster than any other age group and retiring more indebted than ever, according to TD Economics. Significant household debt has been piling up for all ages in Canada in both absolute terms and relative terms since 2007. And they show the plus 65s as as having literally 50% more debt than assets. And that's where, that's an average in the country. That, doesn't, that wasn't the way it used to be. And that's personal debt. Now, what about our government debt, which they keep piling and piling and piling and piling and piling upon? You know, the income gap is Actually, not, the two feed each other. They do. I was just going to say the income gap is really between the public that pays taxes and the people who get paid by taxes. Hmm. That's the real... That's the real 1%, if you will, although they're more than 1%, and we know that. So I'm curious to see, Robert, what you will be having to say about... Uh, the whole protest situation after this break, and I'm looking forward to it. We'll take a break right now. 
Mr. Thurston Howell III. Please be seated. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, George here tells me that you are well acquainted with money. Well, shall we say that money and I are on a first-name basis? <laughs> Good. Our country needs a strong economy. That is why I appoint you as secretary of my treasury. What treasury? That is your first assignment. Well, you see, to have a monetary system, a country must first possess uh, certain rare precious metals. <laughs> In my country, all you need is printing press on paper. Well, I'm afraid we don't have either of those. Ah, but we do have tree bark on my signature. <laughs> tree bark on your signature? Preposterous. Suddenly, it's very preposterous. <laughs> but don't overdo it. We want to stay underdeveloped enough so we can get an American loan. <laughs> Next! <laughs> I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. and There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressmen because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. Damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, and you can get hold of us on, th- on the phone at 519-661-3600 if you have uh, something that you want to say and join the conversation. You can also send us a letter, like our... <laughs> the first letter we talked about today at feedback. Well, not, not like that one. Oh, sure. I, 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 all I kinds. Hey, sure. criticisms. I enjoy the criticisms as much as I enjoy the platitudes. I mean, it's great. Feedback at justrightmedia.org is where you'd want to email us, no matter what you have to say. You can also go to our website see, at uh, justrightmedia.org and uh, like us on Facebook, won't you? Why not? By the way, that first clip we heard from was from Gilligan's Island. It wasn't Greece. Well, the one on the other side of the bumper. It wasn't Greece. It was Gilligan's yeah, Island on right. the other side of the bumper there. Yeah, you'd think it was Greece, though, printing you know, money like that. I was saying it's pretty bad when you have to resort to a show like Gilligan's Island for the kind of wisdom that seems to elude our leaders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gilligan was smarter than we thought. Yeah, I yeah. think so. They print well, money, you know. 
the print, uh, what is it? <laughs> print on bark. So, Bob, it's Are been over. Are you mad as hell? Mad as hell? Oh, I've been mad now ever since I got my first paycheck and I found my taxes <laughs> off of it. That's when I first got mad. I can tell you that. Mm. That's what got me involved in politics, by the way, my very first paycheck. And yes. by the way, I, can, I agree with you that um, we have a, a really good reason to be mad as hell. Everybody, not only the young at the, at the Wall Street protests, but the old, the tea partiers, the middle class, everybody has good reason to be mad because, frankly, the economy is in dire straits, not only in the United States, but in Canada, too. We're kidding ourselves. We don't think that that's not the case. Now, it's been over three weeks since the uh, start of the Occupy Wall Street protest. And we could now see a little more clearly the facts surrounding who started the protest and why. The and which, first... by the way, we should note we did cover a little bit of this last week, too. We did, but we know a little bit more yeah. about it now because last week we thought perhaps it's going to be just a flash in the pan, that kind of a thing, get a little angst out. But but no, it's continuing on, and we, we get more feedback from the uh, media coverage, the pictures, the videos, and the, the statements from the protesters. Mm -hmm. And now we can... Um, focus a little more on what they supposedly want and who actually started the protest. The first few days of the protest reminded me of a scene from the movie Network that, by the way, where we just heard that clip is from the movie Network, where crazed TV anchorman Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, rants at the television audience about the economy and suggests that people yell out their windows and they're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. A pointless gesture, to be sure. Just However, very emotionally moving. If you watch the movie, you can't help oh, but yeah. be emotionally. Um, it was a gripping by, scene, was a, by the way. The whole thing, chilling. It was, you know, and, and, and there was so much spine. of it that, that I agreed with, as we will yeah. hear in the upcoming clip. But uh, oh, carry on. Now, <laughs> while that gesture is pointless, obviously, I mean, what are you going to accomplish by just shouting out the window? Not much. Here. The Wall Street protests, however, have become anything but pointless, if you ask me. The protests were started by American unions, apparently, to create a new class struggle in the U.S., the rich versus the rest of us. The rich being incorrectly defined as 1%, the rest of us as 99%. Now, only about 15% of Americans fall below the arbitrary federal poverty threshold, and less than 10% of Americans are unemployed. Not promising figures, to be sure, but still a far cry from this so-called 99% claimed by the Occupy Wall Street organizers. Another fallacy surrounding the protests is that they are grassroots-driven and lack any coherent leadership or organization. Now, Brian Lilly of Sun News Network reported recently that members of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, are primarily responsible for creating the Occupy Wall Street movement and advertised the fact about two months prior to the first event. The impetus for the protest, no doubt, a response to the um, wildly successful and much more popular Tea Party rallies in the United States. They're not covered as much, of course, because they're middle-class people. They're older people. They're right-wing people. They carry flags. They're not as flamboyant, maybe, as the uh, occupiers. Now, the fact that organized labor is behind the protests should come as no surprise to anyone who have seen the list of demands coming from the protesters. For example, free university education for all. Tax the rich. End capitalism. Have the government take over the banks. Full employment for everybody. A minimum wage of $20 an hour and a guaranteed annual income for all. 
These are some of the demands, all of them coinciding with the demands of organized labor for the past several decades. There's no difference there. Now, these dystopian demands of the protesters are only a superficial reason for the occupation. The real goal, I believe, is to create this class struggle in the United States, which I alluded to earlier. A struggle that President Obama can get behind and champion. He's already co-opted one of the so-called 1% to be a spokesperson for the bourgeoisie, that is Warren Buffett. Buffett's false claims that he pays less tax than his secretary and his call for greater taxes on the wealthy have flamed the hatred of the new proletariat and have given fuel to their envy. Remember that Buffett, the third richest man in the world, with a net worth of about $50 billion, only paid himself a salary of $100,000. His tax was $58.1 million, taxed at a rate of 19%, because it was from dividends and capital gains, while his salary was taxed at the same rate as his employees. So his claim that he pays taxes at a lower rate than his employees was a deliberate deception of the facts. Yes, and any employee that had had stocks would be paid the same dividends. (laughs) (laughs) Rules apply to Buffett as they do to everybody. It's now a false belief that the rich pay less in taxes. As a percentage, they pay the same. As a whole amount, they pay vastly amount uh, uh, more, more than yeah. anybody else. $48 million Buffett paid in taxes. I think it was last year or the year before. $48 million. This one man generated that much in taxation. And one could argue that's $48 million just burned. Well, if you paid it to to the government, then yeah, it's burned. Depending on what you thought you got for it. Yeah, that's right. So it's a false belief that the rich pay less in taxes than the rest of us. And that has given the Wall Street occupiers ammunition to fight for greater taxation. Obama has been quick to jump on this falsehood. By the way, he jumped on it as a truth, not as a falsehood. Mm. The protests have become an excellent case study in politics, the labor movement left-wing ideologies, and by comparison, right-wing ideology. The Internet has gathered videos, photos, and speeches from both the Occupy Wall Street protests and the Tea Party rallies, and many pundits have put the two movements side by side to come up with some fascinating dichotomies of beliefs and actions. The occupiers have been accurately depicted as young people who despise the rich and the system which allows them to create more wealth than they have. They leave behind garbage at their rally sites. They've been seen to be naked, having sex, and taking drugs while protesting. They've broken several laws, including trespass laws, which has resulted in hundreds of arrests. They've been seen defecating on the American flag, burning the American flag, and destroying the American flag. The Tea Party, on the other hand, has been documented to be primarily middle-aged folks who love their country, display their flags proudly and respectfully, at their rallies, have targeted government as the cause of their frustration, are well-behaved and peaceful, and leave their rally sites spotless. Well, clearly they're the problem then. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Those Tea Partiers, boy, what a bunch. What is common to both sides, the Tea Partiers and the Occupiers, is anger at an America that is the shadow of its former self. The United States is failing. The blame runs deep from the creation of Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Federal Reserve System, to crony capitalism, which, by the way, is a misnomer for once the government gets involved in the economy, it's no longer capitalism, it's fascism. 
to the edict by all presidents since Carter that banks must lend to some prime mortgagees, this is a macroscopic view of the blame. A microscopic view of the blame for what ails America can best be summed up in two letters by two very different college women who wrote about their predicaments and posted them online. The one letter reads, quote, I'm a college senior with $40,000 of debt. There are no jobs in my field. My toughest decision now is whether to sell drugs or my body. I am the 99%. Incidentally, she misspelled the word field. Mm-hmm. The other letter reads, quote, I'm a college senior about to graduate completely debt-free. I pay for all my living expenses by working 30-plus hours a week, making barely above minimum wage. I choose a moderately priced in-state public university. I started saving money for school at age 17. I got decent grades in high school and received two scholarships, which cover 90% of my tuition. I currently have a 3.8 GPA. I live comfortably in a cheap apartment, knowing I can't have everything I want. I don't eat out every day or even once a month. I have no credit card, no card, no car rather, no iPad, no smartphone. I'm perfectly okay with that. If I did have debt, I would not blame Wall Street or the government for my own bad decisions. I live below my means to continue saving for the future. I expect nothing to be handed to to me and will continue to work my ass off for everything I have. That's how it's supposed to work. I am not the 99%. And whether or not you are is your decision." Now, the difference in these attitudes is striking, and it acts as a perfect demarcation between what is right with America and what is wrong. It comes down to individual choices. The First Lady continues to borrow money she knows she can't repay to remain in a college studying for a career she claims she cannot attain. Whether or not there are no jobs in her field, as she claims, is highly doubtful and belies a little deep-seated self-doubt, I think. Her resignation to either sell drugs or her body reveals a self-loathing and a destructive nature. Now, the Second Lady studied hard enough to get her scholarship, works hard to pay for the rest of her education, is confident of her future, and most importantly, blames nobody but herself for either her successes or failures. This used to be the mindset and attitude of the once great United States. If every, if every American adopted the attitude of the second college senior, there would have been no subprime mortgage failures, as people who could not have afforded mortgages would not have taken such a liability. People must realize that their problems will not be solved by government, by Wall Street, by the banks, or by anybody but themselves. And this is how it should be. When we deviate from this view and expect others to provide for our education, our health, our welfare, we can only expect a collapse not only of the economy, but of something much more important, Bob, our self-esteem. Absolutely. Now, we're going to take a little break here, and on the other side of it, we're going to be talking about the protest again, but we're going to be talking about symbols and icons of this protest. So we'll be back right after this. That evening, Howard Beale went on the air to preach the corporate cosmology of Arthur Jensen. I got up here and asked you people to stand up and fight for your heritage, and you did, and it was beautiful. 
Six million telegrams were received at the White House. The Arab takeover of CCA has been stopped. The people spoke, the people won. It was a radiant eruption of democracy. But I think that was it, fellas. That sort of thing is not likely to happen again. Because at the bottom of all our terrified souls, we know that democracy is a dying giant, a sick, sick, dying, decaying political concept writhing in its final pain. I don't mean that the United States is finished as a world power. The United States is the richest, the most powerful, the most advanced country in the world, light years ahead of any other country. And I don't mean the communists are going to take over the world because the communists are deader than we are. What is finished is the idea that this great country is dedicated to the freedom and flourishing of every individual in it. It's the individual that's finished. It's the single solitary human being that's finished. It's every single one of you out there that's finished. Because this is no longer a nation of independent individuals. It's a nation of some 200-odd million transistorized, deodorized, whiter-than-white, steel-belted bodies, totally unnecessary as human beings and as replaceable as piston rods. General Esteban Alvarez. Well, why were we kidnapped? You are Captain Lee Crane. Your wallet. I asked a question. You're not kidnapped. You were arrested while attempting to kidnap our beloved Presidente Alejandro Fuentes. Who's going to believe that? All of my countrymen. Because they're afraid not to. Because you are going to publicly admit your guilt. I'll admit nothing, publicly or privately. You may change your mind. To celebrate the first anniversary of our liberation, I have promised that every hour, one traitor will die. From now until midnight tomorrow. Names are being drawn by lot from the condemned men here. Your four names are already included and will remain so until you advise me that you are ready to make the public confession of your guilt. Captain? Gentlemen. Captain, you think he means it? Nah, he's just trying to throw a bluff into us. Yeah. Yeah, he's just bluffing. Some people have likened, <clears throat> excuse me, some people have <clears throat> likened the recent Wall Street protests to the anti-war protests of the 1960s. Matter of fact, Bob, I think that there's a lot of young people out there who look back at our generation, perhaps even our parents' generation, and at the 60s protests and sort of envy 
that kind of a movement. And maybe this is their way of trying to capture a little bit of that. I don't know if that's true or not, but perhaps. To feel like you're part of something. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, there are a number of iconic symbols and pictures and phrases that have come to represent that unique time and series of events. The peace symbol, which stood for nuclear disarmament. The picture of the flower, a Kent State student stuck in the barrel of a reservist rifle. The death chant of Timothy Leary, turn on, tune in, drop out. Some of the iconic and symbolic imagery of the Occupy Wall Street protests would be much circulated, the much circulated pictures of uh, one protester that I referred to before actually defecating on the U.S. flag. Unbelievable. And another actually defecating on a police car. Again, have you seen those pictures, Bob? No, I haven't, but I discussed them on another radio station yesterday, and I referred to them as the intellectual side of the debate. (laughs) (laughs) They are, in that sense, iconic, yes. Another would be the pictures of the piles of garbage with the protesters left behind, perhaps, I think, in the hope that their mothers would drop by and clean them up. Mm -hmm. An iconic (laughs) phrase would be the false, quote, we are the 99%. Which is reminiscent of, I think, Jerry Falwell's so-called moral majority, where he was actually wrong on both accounts. Also iconic uh, of the Wall Street protests and the protesters is the ubiquitous wearing of Che Guevara t-shirts. I've been looking at a lot of the videos, and his image is popping up all over the place. Apparently, the movement's ideology has an affinity with that of Cuba's official executioner. And I'm not sure whether or not the people sporting the much-publicized image of Che Guevara, his distant gaze, his useful visage, surrounded by flowing locks of black hair stuffed under a beret, uh, one of the most replicated photos in history. It makes you wonder if the people wearing the image actually know who Che Guevara was. And what what he was. And what ideology he espoused and killed for. I suspect they do. And yet, when I see an adult black man in New York City, as I saw the other day, being interviewed, wearing a T-shirt with Che Guevara on it, I wonder if they knew that Guevara was a racist. Obviously not. Last week was the anniversary of his death, the death of Ernesto Che Guevara, at the hands of Bolivian soldiers. It was fitting that, um, I think, that's fitting that we remember the man and his message in his own words. Quote, The blacks, those magnificent examples of the African race who have maintained their racial purity thanks to their lack of an affinity with bathing, have seen their territory invaded by a new kind of slave, the Portuguese. Quote, The black is indolent and a dreamer, spending his meager wage on frivolity and drink. The European has a tradition of work and saving, which has pursued him as far as the corner of, as to the far corners of America and drives him to advance himself, even independently of his own individual aspirations. Quote, The episode upset us a little because the poor man, apart from being a homosexual and a first-rate bore, had been very nice to us. Quote, The first person we hit on was the mayor, someone called Cohen. We'd heard about him, that he was Jewish as far as money was concerned, but a good sort. Quote, Mexicans are a band of illiterate Indians. Quote, We're going to do for blacks exactly what blacks did for the revolution. 
by which I mean nothing. Those were quotes from Che Guevara. Tell you a little bit about the guy. How about these quotes, exemplifying Guevara's bloodlust? Quote, Crazy with fury, I will stain my rifle red with spice while slaughtering any enemy that falls in my hands. My nostrils dilate with savoring while savoring the acrid odor of gunpowder and blood. With the deaths of my enemies, I prepare my being for the sacred fight and join the triumphant proletariat with a bestial howl. Very intellectual, as you say, Bob. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Quote, to send men to the firing squad, judicial proof is unnecessary. These are the procedures of the bourgeois detail. This is a revolution, and a revolutionary must become a cold killing machine motivated by pure hate. We must create the teaching of the wall. Wall Street? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what our own Human Rights Commission would do with a man like Che Guevara if they had him. On October 8th, 1967, Che left the world with this cowardice plea. Quote, don't shoot, I'm Che. I'm worth more to you alive than dead. That was his last words, apparently. <laughs> che Guevara was put in charge of executing counter-revolutionaries. People like a man and his twin 15-year-old boys who refused to relinquish their own family farmland to Fidel Castro's gang of thugs. People like a young pregnant woman. Or countless thousands, perhaps as many as 2,100 people, murdered at the wall below Che Guevara's office. The firing squads sometimes ran day and night with Che gleefully administering the coup de grace to his victims, a single shot to the head with his pistol. Not content with the revolution in Cuba, the Argentinian Che traveled to the Congo and Bolivia to incite Stalinist revolutions in those countries. He met his just end in Bolivia, executed by a Bolivian soldier. His body was unceremoniously disposed of. So, when next you see some college student or even an adult wearing the face of Che Guevara, you might wonder if they would wear it knowing the true nature of this purely evil man. Racist, homophobe, anti-Semite, communist, murderer. Would they wear the face of Hitler? Or Osama bin Laden or any other evil creature walking around the campuses of universities in their public streets? It may be out of ignorance, Bob, that people display the image of Guevara. On the other hand, it may be that they know full well what they're doing. What do you think? Well, that's kind of a scary question, actually, Robert, whether they know their full well. I think most of them don't because most of them don't even know what their own government's doing, let alone what somebody else's government was doing. But they must know something about him to, to, to even think he's a hero in any way, shape, or form. You know, revolutionary, that's all they see. That's all they Someone see. who's changed something. And not, they don't care that it was changed for the worse, infinitely worse. That if they was, had been brought was, back 40 years to stand and watch Che Guevara work, what he did best, which was to murder people. And that's why you must... They re- would be sick to their stomachs. That's why you must reject every single politician that comes up to you and says, I'm going to promise you change. Because the change is usually worse than what you had before. And that's probably part of the reason Hudak got nailed, part of the reason that Obama's such a disaster, because he's given them the change. And he is actually creating many of the symptoms to which they're all protesting against, too. I guess that's it for this week. We've got to get out of here because I think we're getting a finger from the other room there. (laughs) Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right. Be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Oh, 
Long. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 